0: Welcome to the Bethany Community Church Sermon Podcast. This ministry is intended to inspire you and help bring solutions to the challenges of life. Today's message is part one of what does the Bible say about power and politics. For more information about other ministries here at Bethany Community Church, you can visit us at our website at bccma.org or you could always send us an email at office at bccma.org. Org. And now, here's Pastor Phil McCutcheon. Okay, um, I want to get in the word today. Considering the political season, I thought it would be appropriate if I would talk to you about what the Bible says about power and politics. So, uh, I, my, my goal here today is that you would begin to think gratefully for Governance. Everybody say governance. governance. So we're not just talking about uh, the state, though that includes the state. We're talking about the role of governance in all of your life. And uh, so I want, I want to help you to begin to think gratefully toward governance. I want you to begin to embrace the principle of governance in your life because it's a principle that, for which God will actually give you power it's actually God's way of bringing power into your life if you begin to have a proper perspective about power and both up and down. And finally, I, I want to talk to you about the glory of God. And I want, I want to help you to get balanced re- contrasting the glory of God to the good, to the good or the evil of government. So I believe God has a word for you, judging by how the first service went. Uh, nobody, nobody walked out or threw things at me, so uh, <laughs> uh, I hope we can get through this one the same way. Well, Pericles was a, a uh, governmental leader back in Athens, Greece in uh, 400 BC or so, and he, he uh, was responsible for... Uh, Athenian democracy and largely responsible for the uprising of the Athenian Empire in Greece. And um, he made a statement that I believe is appropriate because somebody, uh, somebody will always want to say to me, I don't care about politics. I don't, I don't, I don't want to think about politics. Well, Pericles got it right all those years ago. He said, just because you do not take an interest in politics does not mean politics will not take an interest in you. <laughs> Politics affects your life. That little blurb I wrote about wearing a mask, that's about government. And I don't mean it in a pejorative way. I don't mean politics in a pejorative way. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Some of us think of only politics in a very pejorative, negative way. So we want to change that, try to change that today. Uh, but as a person who believes in Jesus Christ and is a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, how do do I want to think about politics at all? Christ is my guiding light, not a political figure. The church is my primary source of affiliation, not my citizenship or my adoption of a certain political party. And I'm not I'm not opposed to having a political party. I'm not I'm certainly not opposed to citizenship. But in the Bible, so so. How does God want us to relate to governance and government and politics and the whole situation that we find ourselves in? Well, in the Bible, we see that God doesn't at all have his people absent themselves from the political process. On the contrary, in the Bible, uh, almost every writer in the Old Testament was also a political leader. Kings. There were several kings. In fact, there's a whole book about kings. And they had so much to say, they had to write a second book about kings. I don't know. Kings, that's a political leader, right? Book of Samuel. Also, there was a period in Israel's history before kings they, that they had judges that ruled. The Judges were also prophets. There's a whole book called the Book of Samuel. And, uh, we all know the story of, uh, we all know the story of Samson. Samson was a political leader in Israel. Uh. uh Jesus, when he came to earth, introduced his his message. He used a political metaphor to introduce his message. He said he came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That was a political um, messaging that he was bringing to the world. Daniel 2.21 says, God, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who understand. It sounds like God is... Pretty interesting politics. If he sets up kings and removes kings. Remember, they didn't talk about presidents or prime ministers in those days. They talked about kings. And then, uh, of course, uh, Proverbs 29.2 talks about the, the painfulness of being under uh, a wicked king. It says, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. And, and there's a whole... I won't get into that today. Maybe next Sunday we'll talk about it again. But uh, about sometimes when God wants to discipline. If you look at history, when God's people moved away from honoring God and glorifying God, God would raise up an evil king to bring them back into line. And um, so, so God cares. So uh, God, obviously, uh, God obviously has introduced this concept of governance into the human race. Will Rogers was a, uh, a humorist who talked about politics a lot. He was sort of part cowboy, part, um, part comedian, part actor, part political commentator. Back in the uh, late 20s and early 30s, before he was unfortunately killed in a plane crash in 1935. But uh, w- Will Rogers uh, kind of captures the cynical way that a lot of us feel about politics. He said this, he said... Congress is so strange. He said, a man gets up and speaks and says nothing. Nobody listens. And then everybody disagrees. (laughs) He also said, never blame a legislative body for not doing something. When they do nothing, they don't hurt anybody. (laughs) My favorite is, well, all I can say about the Senate is it opens with a prayer and closes with an investigation. That was in 1930, so he wrote that, guys. Uh, nothing has changed. <laughs> the church's job, though, and responsibility, I believe, is captured. It's not my text for today, but it is important in Scripture. In, in Mark chapter 12, verse 14, when uh, two political groups got together, colluded... And came to Jesus to try to trap him and trip him up with his words by asking him, who do we pay taxes to, God or Caesar? And, that's, and, and so, so the, these two groups were the, were the uh, Pharisees who represented the national interest of Israel and the, uh, and the Herodians who represented the global inter- international. Yeah, I don't know if they were global yet, but they were certainly international. The international interests of Rome. And they, th- th- they had been brought together because of their opposition to Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't a part of either party. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't, you're going to see that in what they say in a minute. And what they said about Jesus captures what I believe the job of the church is and the job of the preacher is at the church. They said this, teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. I hope that can be said of me and you too. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. In other words, you don't, you're don't. no respecter of persons. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. That's the church's job today. That's my job, to teach the way of God. And somebody would say, I've heard people say, well, you just preach Jesus. What does that mean? Just preach Jesus. What does that mean? I don't know what that means, really. i I don't see that in the Bible where they ever said, just preach Jesus. They talked about all kinds of things, the epistles and Jesus. Jesus talked about how to treat your neighbor, how to do this, how to do that. I think just preach Jesus is a, fo- a wrong statement, a wrong advice. I think you should say to me, pastor, try to preach like Jesus. I think that's a better, I think that's a better directive to follow than just preach Jesus. Uh, and we ought to preach Jesus, by the way. It ought to be the—it's the main thing. Absolutely, I agree with you on that. But today, I want—as I said earlier—I want you to think gratefully, prayerfully about politics, power, and human government, without making it your idol, on which all your hopes and aspirations evolve. And when I say power and politics, I'm not just talking about presidential and congressional elections. I'm talking about power and politics that operates in every aspect of your life. Don't tell me you don't have politics in your family. Your family is a political organization. You you know, you've heard the phrase, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's politics. But of course, it's it's not fair to the women. That's not fair to the women because plenty of families operate with a different locus of control. Some families, if little junior's not happy, ain't nobody happy. If baby ain't happy. Some families, if daddy ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. But every every family has politics in the family. Every family has a hierarchy. And like I said, it might be when Junior screams. It might be when mama screams. It might be when Daddy yells. But every family has a has a hierarchy, and every family has politics, and you know you deal with it all the time, especially I don't I don't know with the new Mandates about Thanksgiving. I I don't know how it works, but I know how. Outside of outside of this year, forget this year. Let's just forget this year. How about that? (laughs) Forget this year. Uh, You know that family politics come into play, and where you're going for Thanksgiving, where you're going for Christmas, right? (laughs) So we're stuck with politics. So let's let's jump into this, because I want to tell you three things today. I want to teach you about three things. The goodness of governance, the grounding of governance, and the glory of God. The goodness of governance. Now, there's a wrong-headed idea that governance and power, anyone having power over another, is evil and should always be resisted. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was a philosopher who wrote in the 17th century, and his ideas are still played out today. Uh, even if you don't know that they are. They are played out in your life. Ideas have consequences, by the way. And next Sunday, I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to talk about the ideas of the culture that sometimes we don't know how to deal with and we don't even realize are affecting our lives and affecting our children's lives. But John Jean, jacques Rousseau, he was a Swiss philosopher who wrote in the 1700s, and he, 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 believed, uh, he believed in... Um, a version of equity that said that no one should really have govern that no one, should, no one should have to do anything against their will, basically. No one should have to do anything against their will. No one else should impose on another a rule uh, uh, or a rule of law, okay? And here's what he said. He said, um, he wrote, I felt more than ever from repeated experience that associations on unequal terms Unequal terms, this is where we get the idea of equality as we, as we talk about it in the current political culture. Unequal terms are always to the disadvantage of the weaker party. And he imagined a world where that wouldn't happen. Now, he's, he's not totally off base, so I'm not saying I totally agree with Rousseau. But there's another guy that I like better than Rousseau, and his name is the Apostle Paul. And so I'm going to read the Apostle Paul, who said in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong... Be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you've revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. That's a pretty astounding verse, isn't it? And then I want to add, I want to jump over to, to, the, to the far right uh, in the Bible, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Then this amazing three words? I can't believe it's in there. Honor the emperor. Now, let's put it in the context. Let's put Romans 13 into the context. Romans chapter 12, Apostle Paul has talked to us as a church about how we're to love one another, respect one another, be deferential in our treatment of one another, discover our gifts and make those gifts available to the other members of the church, honor people for their gifts, and and let their gifts uh, affect and minister to your life. Uh, It says in the latter part of chapter 12, love one another with a pure heart fervently. And so he's talks. He's talking about this counterculture within the culture, this governance within the governance of the state, that um, that is to be ideal in the way it treats one another. That we don't. We normally don't even need the laws that tell us to be fair to one another, not hurt one another, because we have been uh, submitted to the law of Christ. And and then he, so he does that chapter 12 and then in chapter 13 he takes eight verses to talk about our relationship to the state to the emperor to caesar and you heard yeah, I just read it and then he jumps right back into the source of our salvation and then chapter 14 right back into how we are to treat one another and how especially if you have if you have a sense of, if you have freedom to do certain things but the other people in the church are hurt or offended or are caused to stumble by that freedom that you have, uh, you are to, uh, you are to uh, suppress your freedom because you love the other members of the church so much. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? It's like a sandwich. Christianity, your church, your family, your spiritual family, a little bit on the state, back to the church and your relationship. With, 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 I think there's something significant about the amount of time he gives both, right? We'll get back to that later. So let's start with simply saying, he doesn't say government's bad, does he? he and he, he, he says, submit to those guys, and, 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 and in some case females even in that day, submit to those people who put, give their full time to governance. Now, government's good because the government, you had clean water this morning to take a shower. How many took a shower? <laughs> you had clean water to take a shower and make your coffee this morning. You know, that's because the government monitors the quality of the water supply. For that, we can thank the Pure Food and Drug Act that Theodore Roosevelt signed in 1906. Roosevelt was a skeptic and he didn't believe the horror stories that he was hearing about bad food and bad water. Upland Sinclair wrote about that in a book called The Jungle and he read it and didn't believe it and he sent out investigators to check around the country to see if it was true and he was horrified by the stories that he he heard and he sent his his team out to investigate and within weeks the legislation was passed and then 30 years later another Roosevelt signed the Federal Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act strengthened the ability of the government and, and created the Food and Drug Administration to make sure your food was saved and labeled correctly. And, and uh, you know, there might be some problems with the water that you drink occasionally, but you can pretty be sure that it doesn't hold raw sewage, thanks to the Rivers and Harbors Act that William McKinley signed in 1899, and that it won't be placed with toxic chemicals uh, thanks to the Federal Water Pollution Control Act that Harry Truman signed in 1948 and the Clean Water Act which passed Congress in 1972. You can plan your day pretty much around the weather. And I know people who say you can't, you can't, they never get the weather right. Well, they get it right a lot more than they get it wrong, my friend, if you want to know the truth. But you can pretty much plan your day around the weather report and what you're going to wear. And every every morning I ask Siri, what's the weather today? And then I dress accordingly. And uh, I can do that because of this thing called the National Weather Service. He's like, well, the church could take care of that, sure. <laughs> right we could <laughs> we we could do we could do take over that right uh, you can be reasonably sure that this group will not fall in on you and that the gas lines and water lines that come into your house and the the electrical lines that come into your house and come in this building uh, aren't going to kill you while you're here because the government passed building codes and they have inspectors who inspect these things before we build them. And I know I grate against them every time I build something, but I'm very thankful when I visited countries that don't have what we have in terms of uh, inspections, I'm thankful to get back to America where you're not feeling like the roof's going to fall in on you all the time, right? And what about, what about uh, uh, you can be reasonably sure that the medicines you take are safe for consumption because of the government? Reasonably sure. You, what about the licensing standards? You know, I, I don't really, I'm not really so concerned about uh, plumbers being licensed, but I sure want my doctor to be licensed. <laughs> I don't want some guy that just, you know, he was a landscaper last week and now he thinks he's going to, thinks he'd like to do a little surgery, you know? So, so so i I go to get my you know my test. I say you need surgery, well, Joe here who's a landscaper last week he's going to he he's good with shears. You know, he's gonna he's gonna take care of you. Know I want my doctor be lessons. I want my doctor, I want the nurse that's working on me to have some training and had to had to pass a test. I want that big old tr- that truck driver. Where, where's John where's my here? I don't know if John's here, but I John, I want that, I want that uh, people driving those big rigs out there. I want them to have to have pass some kind of test that shows that they ought to be behind the wheel of a behemoth like that, barreling down the highway at 75 miles an hour. Eisenhower. And what about the roads and the railroads? George Washington was the first one to start an initiative that he would connect the country by roads, and Thomas Jefferson later signed uh, th- that into legislation. And much later, uh, President Eisenhower created the Highway uh, uh, Act, which uh, Created 41,000 miles of roads and highways across the United States to connect us together, so you, you get to go to Disney World. <laughs> of course, traffic laws. you know, I don't like speed limit laws, but they're pretty good things to have. It certainly help to ensure that most likely you'll reach your destination uh, without crashing, or worse, without being killed. By the way, if Rome had not built roads that their armies could travel on, Apostle Paul and the other apostles and disciples would have been stuck in and around Jerusalem and this great glorious gospel would have never gone to the world. I would not say never, but they wouldn't have gone when it did, that's for sure. So, why don't we just stop right now and say, thank you God for governance. God, thank you. Thank you for governance. The lights are on, God. The highways are passable. All of our streets are not in chaos, though some of them are, but they're not all. We can walk through the town of Milford and Mendon and Medway and all these towns today. Thank you, God. Thank you for laws and thank you for law officers. Thank you for governance. Okay, let's look at the grounding of governance. Is it biblical? The Bible says... I think we already established that. Romans Romans 13.1, he said there is no authority except, no authority. He didn't say some, there is no authority except that which has been established by God. So, what we see is that governance, hierarchies of governance, power, and leadership are grounded by God, both in the scripture and in the nature and structure of of reality. You see, people that will even don't read the scripture, they still live out the scripture. The Bible even says it, that the Gentiles who don't have the law, the law is written on their consciences. And so, you you see this in simple matters. You see when, when young people, students, if they get together, I'm going to tell you, most likely, there's a lot of things that are going to happen when students get together. But one thing that's going to happen is they're going to start playing games. They're going to anybody's had kids. You know what kids do? They play games, because that's the way we prepare for life. The way we prepare for life is to play games. When when Ellie comes over, it's always pop. Let's go down to the basement and play kitchen. <laughs> so we go down to the basement and play kitchen. She and I, and she immediately starts establishing rules. The rules is, you sit there, I go to the kitchen, and I make you coffee, and she'll bring over and pour the coffee, and she'll make food for me. Now, she ain't... I gotta follow the rules. She's not gonna sit down and let me do it for her, because that's her job. She's assigning roles, she's the boss, she's the governor, and I'm the subject. She also... We, we also play the piano and sing. And when you play the piano and sing, she has to put on her hat and get her guitar. Right? That's, and she decides what's going to be sung and not going to be sung. A <laughs> bunch of kids get together to play a game. Um, a little older kids, they, they will always create, you have, they always eventually create a set of rules. Oh, you can't do that no, you, you, the ball went over there. You can't go over there. They'll create all these rules for the game. And, they, and they'll create who's in charge. You know, the, the kid who brought, uh, brings the ball is usually in charge because he can take his ball and go home. God has wired us for governance. God has wired us to organize ourselves according to rules and someone to enforce the rules and then we, then we get a referee who, who penalizes us for breaking the rules and God has created this marvelous way that things can work in a way that's orderly. The Bible says God is a God of order. Amen. Not only that, but we establish hierarchies of competence. I'm not saying that every hierarchy is based on competence because we all know some idiot who gets in charge once in a while, right? Mostly, our hierarchies are determined by competence. If, let's, let's say, for, in, for instance, it's, you decide to build a pastor a new house, which I think is a really marvelous idea. Now, you're not going to go, well, we don't want to make anybody feel bad, so we want everybody to get to work on this house. No, you're not going to do I, You better not do that. You better find... The most competent people in this church who are the most competent, and I guarantee it won't be me. I mean, when I start to work around the house, Sherry starts making phone calls <laughs> to other people who work. But we want to find the best people. Now, it, 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 we want to find the best people, and we want to put them in charge of building the pastor's new house. God has designed us so we create hierarchies of competence that they, they develop out of the foundation of the world and it improves and increases the quality of our lives. The people that were on this stage this morning pretty much the best we can tell are the most capable musicians in the room. What if we said, we don't believe that's right. We should let we should let, uh, let Stephen Greco should, should get to play. He wants to sing. He wants to say his feelings are hurt because he doesn't get he didn't get to sing this morning. We can't have that. That creates chaos. No. God has designed us, and so it gives us the best experience. Is it always feel fair? No, it doesn't always feel fair. But it gives us the best experience of life, the best quality of life possible. God and see, this is what Eve got in trouble. Eve didn't like this God's system of governance. Eve didn't like that somebody got to be God, and she didn't, and she's bought into the lie. You know, the lie was not just that. The, the lie was not just the, the lie was not that God couldn't be God. The lie was that she got to be God too, and Adam got to be God, and they, if they had a little Adam and Evelets, they got to be gods. And guess what? If you have a room full of gods, you got a room full of chaos and tragedy and murder. When you have a room full of gods, we need order so we don't all kill each other. God is really brilliant, guys. He knew what he was doing when he designed the world. And when we we rebel, you know, I need to say one more thing about this. And that is, God has built into the fabric of reality that even the worst leader, even the worst leader has a responsibility to protect and provide for their people. Because it's bad for you if your people all starve. That's bad for you. You must say, I'm a great leader, but all your people are dying. I'm still a great leader because I, I beat up the other guy to get in charge, right? Remember Vladimir Lenin, when Vladimir Lenin got in charge, and I don't think he was a good guy. When he got in charge of Russia, he decided that nobody... Uh, in, the, in the Soviet Union, you know, that, 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 that nobody should be the boss down at the factory, nobody should be the workers, everybody should be the same, and the person making the widgets had the same skills as the manager and, and the accountants, and so he tried to make this equity thing uh, work out, and uh, he, you, you know, right off the bat, 100,000 people starved to death in Russia. And so what did he do? He went back and changed it. So the manager was the manager, and got paid a little more money because of the pressure. Because remember, when you're the manager, you you're the one that's going to pay the price if every, if if it doesn't if the stuff doesn't work, right? So God's God's designed all this. In fact, if we if we push back against the nature of reality, the Bible says this great little verse. I don't. Know if it's a great little verse. It's a tragic little verse about in Isaiah when the Israel began to. Rebel against God's ways, and here's what God said: If you guys, because you guys are doing this, He said, I will make boys their leaders, and toddlers their rulers. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. Young people will insult their elders, and vulgar people will sneer at the honorable. That's when that's when you have resisted the structure of reality, and reality slaps you in the face. And that's what happens. Finally, let's get to the best part of this sermon, and that is the glory of God. Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another. Remember what Peter said? Fear God, honor the emperor. That's interesting. He juxtaposed those two ideas. What does fear mean? What does honor mean? Well, honor means, the, the, the Greek word is, and it means respect and proper recognition. That's why they salute. the army, they salute. That's giving respect and proper recognition. The word fear means to be terrified and filled with awe. The weight of the glory of God and the weight of man. That's what we're talking about here this morning. The time has come for you to wake from your sleep, he says in verse 11, for salvation is nearer than when you first believed. What is, what, is, what is Paul doing? He's talked about the power of the state, but then he stops and says, in essence, he is saying, salvation does not come from the state. Salvation does not come from human governance. How salvation comes from the Lord. It's as though Paul interrupts himself in Romans 13 to say, obey the government, honor the state, but don't expect it to be your source of salvation. In the pantheon of Roman emperors that we have, the early church that they were called to honor and salute were Caligula and Nero, terrible people who did terrible things, committed horrible atrocities, even against Christians, especially against Christians. Humans always fall short of the glory of God. In fact, the Antichrist figure that we read about in Revelation has the number six, carries with him the number of 666. The number 666 is one short of. The number seven. Seven is the number of perfection. It's the number of God. Six is the number of man. No matter man at his very best and at his very finest will always fall short of the glory of God. Glory means brilliance, human governance, power and leadership. It's destined to disappoint. It will always dim before the brilliance of the Lord. In Acts 12, there was this governor named Herod. And Herod was over the people of Tyre and Sidon. And the people of Tyre and Sidon were dependent on him for food. And he let this dependency go to his head, and begin to glorify himself. And one day they came to him, and when he began to speak to them, the people, of course, they were beholden to him. They wanted to make, they wanted to build his ego, so that all these people out there in the crowd said, "Behold, the voice of God and not a man." When Herod began to speak, and the Bible says he did not give God the glory, and he fell dead of a heart attack because he did not give God the glory. Uh, Tommy, I want you to bring me those scales. Uh, Over there, I love scales as a metaphor. Scales are a great metaphor. By the way, I forgot my umbrella because I wanted to say this. Leadership. Leadership is like, a leader is like an umbrella that God has put over you, right? God puts an umbrella of leadership over you. If if it's leaking and I'm getting wet, I can destroy the umbrella, right? That's why I can just destroy the umbrella. But I'm going to really get wet if I destroy the umbrella. And that's what some of us do. When leadership disappoints us, lets us down, and lets us get wet, we want to destroy the umbrella. We want to destroy God's plan of giving protection to our lives and protecting us from the forces of evil that are trying to destroy us. God has instituted governance as in part to, to, to protect us from the powers of evil. So a better plan than throwing the umbrella away and destroying it is to start fixing the leaks and begin to pray that whatever flaws my leader has, whatever flaws that he or she has, begin to pray that God will fix them and begin to pray fervently for them and intercede for them so that God will fix the leaks because they, at that point, are the person that God has put in my life. Amen? So let's talk about glory again. I've got a couple of objects here. Like I said, I love I love I love scales because they demonstrate truth out of balance is heresy. It's when you get truth in balance. So this represents your confidence in the government, human governance, right? And so we're going to put that over here, and that's remember the word glory is the Hebrew word kabod, and it means weight. W-E-I-G-H-T, not W-A-I-T. W-E-I-G-H-T, it means weight. How much weight something carries in your life. I have, I have discovered in the last couple of weeks how weighty government, human government was in my life. I'm going to be just transparent with you. I haven't slept well a few nights. Because I discovered how much weight human government plays in my life, and how concerned, and how, how 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 stressed I get about the election results all over the country. Right now, God says we saw this, We saw that clear. Fear God. In other words, your 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 um, respect for God is so great that it's almost like terror. It's like you're just like, not not so much from a fear of judgment, but because of God's greatness, you just, if you have this improper perspective, you are really terrified at not pleasing God. Not because of the fear of judgment so much, but because you believe his wisdom is so great, and you believe he's so powerful. So uh, to represent the glory of God, I've got two Bibles here. This is a big fat one that with my uh, older eyes, I can actually read it. You can probably read it from the back row. You young people can probably read it from the back row. And then I've got a little beauty Bible here. This is Holy Bible. It's really little. And I don't think anybody could read that print. That is unbelievable. I'd take a magnifying glass to read that. But it's tiny. Now, some of you have a lot of... Stress about government and election and all that stuff, and you fill your mind night and day with social media and CNN and Fox and MSNBC and all that and Twitter, and you got a little bitty Bible, just got a little tiny Bible. You don't really know a lot about what it says about all this stuff uh, that you're supposed to do, and you're not really as worried maybe as you should be about. Its directions for your life, and so you got this little bitty Bible, and when you put it beside your worry and fear of government, human government, flawed human government, destined to fail, destined to, is destined to go back to the you know disappear, and but and you weigh your little bitty Bible and your little bitty knowledge of what God wants for your life and your little bitty focus on what and the minutes that you spend over here learning all about. The election and learning all about all the problems and learning all about the scandals and learning all about the. And hey, guilty as charged. Look at me, I'm guilty. I, 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 won't, I know a lot more than I need to know right now. <laughs> but this last week I've discovered I have a big old Bible that represents the weight of God's glory. And if I will put this, now it. My illustration kind of falls apart here because it won't fit, see? <laughs> it's so big it won't even fit. <laughs> but if I put the weight of God, his knowledge, his power, his glory, you know? Somebody said that they, they saw a, a, a reenactment of the show West Wing the other day and that they, whoever was president in the thing was controlling four chess games. And he won all four chess games. And all the other guys in the, on the stage go, how did you do that? He said, well, you look at the next move. I look at the whole board. Because he was saying to them, well, if you make that move with a chess piece, seven moves later, it's not going to work. That's God. God sees the next move and the next move and the next move and the next move. And I don't. So I can try to be God, but that didn't, I tried that a couple of times. It didn't work out very well me trying to be God. But when I relax in his presence and I let him be God and I give him the glory. You know, we talk about glorifying God, giving God the glory. We talk about, we use that kind of language in our songs. But are we doing it? Are we giving God the glory? Are we giving him the weight of his great wisdom, his awesome love, his amazing plan, his amazing salvation? His ability to take down one leader and install another, his ability to take our lives. Listen, let me tell you something. I'm going to close with this. In the book of Romans, there are 433 verses in the book of Romans. 433. The Apostle Paul gives Caesar and the state and human governance eight verses. He gives your relationship with Jesus and God and your relationship with other members of the church, 425 verses. He understood the weight of the glory of God. Do I and do you. I want us to stand right now. I don't know about you, but when I want to give glory to God... There's something about it I need to, I think it's a human, I think it's also in the structure of human reality, is that when we glorify something, we do this. If you go to a music concert, right, and you love the players, and you're you're so happy to be there, what do you do? Your hands go like that, and you start to sway back and forth, or something like that. If you go to, probably if you go to a political rally, I, I didn't pay much attention, but probably people's hands go up. Because you're lifting, what you're doing, the object, the object, you're lifting it up. It's so much you want to physically lift it up. So could we do that to God right now and to Jesus? Lord, we lift our hands. Hallelujah. We give glory to the God of all grace. We give glory to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You said the government will be on his shoulders you said in Revelation that the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. So we give you glory, God. And if there's one person in the sound of my voice who hasn't made you their president, hasn't made you their king, I pray they would do that right now because it is the best, greatest, awesome, and it brings balance to all the other pressures and all the other failing human beings who play a role in my life, your grace and your glory bring me back into balance time after time after time. And I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Release your spirit in this room. Release your spirit in this room right now. Release your spirit in this room. The spirit of grace and glory and power. And let the power of Almighty God outweigh The power of any human that we know, no matter how much we admire them, how much we want them to be elected or whatever, or love them, even if it's members of our family. Lord, let us keep honoring, but let us not fear. Let us keep honoring humans, but let us stop fearing. I rebuke fear in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.